Welcome back, guys, to Neurology Exam Prep from Yale Neurology. Uh, my name is Safa Abdel-Hakim. I'm a PGY3 Neurology resident, and I have with me Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Dewey. You guys are pretty familiar with him. <laughs> One yeah, of our- thanks for having me back. I, uh, yeah, I was beginning to think you didn't like the peripheral nervous system. but Well, we were busy with, with, with some other things, you know, but... Uh... <laughs> it's been very good, I got to say. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> Thank you very much for your encouragement. Um, so why don't we, I, I realize that this is a very uh, difficult um, topic to, to go over in a podcast, but I think today we'll sort of just have it more be like a casual conversation. Um, you will um, ask me questions. I'll try to know, I guess. Um, what do you have for me? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss. Let's not think about it as question and answer. And we'll see if we can teach uh, peripheral anatomy without any pictures, which would be a, a first. You know, okay. it'll, it'll be a fireside chat. And I'll just preface that uh, any anatomic correlations we give as far as innervation are sourced from a book everyone should have, which is the Aids to the Examination of the Peripheral Nervous System. And it's published by uh, the Guarantors of Brain, the journal. Uh, it's a nice $20 addition to anyone's neuro bag. So that's where, that's where our material is coming from, uh, but it's, of course, all over the place. So what, um, let's talk about the upper extremity today, and I think uh, we'll probably focus more on the, the proximal stuff, like the brachial plexus, which is everyone's least favorite, so we'll get it out of the way first. What's your comfort level uh, with the anatomy of the upper extremity in general? Um, very little. <laughs> But I always try to think about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. Yeah, we, uh, we see a lot of, of stroke and a lot of central stuff in, in training, especially at large centers. And so I think it's important that we talk about these. Is yeah, there anything I can tell you where the pica is, but I can't tell you where the C7 something distribution is. <laughs> no, is there I anything in particular that's, that's hard for you? Um, I, I think um, just kind of uh, the, the mental picture um, I can retrieve in an exam or mm-hmm. if I try to think about it hard, but uh, it doesn't come immediately. And I think I just need repetition. So hopefully we can achieve that for most of our audience and for, for myself today. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of, a lot of this is rote memorization, uh, particularly the structure of the brachial plexus and what muscles are innervated by what nerves and, you know, myotomes and dermatomes. So maybe today we can just talk a little more conceptually and think about how this plays out in, in actual practice. Uh, so I like to have an approach uh, when I think about peripheral nervous anatomy and issues. I think uh, proximal to distal, meaning I start in the spinal cord and work, work my way down. I think it's equally valid to think uh, distal to proximal, but I just recommend everyone has a system. So let's start at the most proximal point. Um, where, Sava, where do these cell bodies for the motor and sensory neurons reside? So the alpha motor neuron is in the ventral horn of the spinal cord. Um, sensory dorsal root ganglia uh, um, are immediately adjacent to the cord. They reside with the, the, within the foramen. Yeah, and that point's actually really important. So uh, I'm going I'm to diverge for a second, but uh, that location of the dorsal root ganglia matters. So we always think about disc herniations as causing radicular pain mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes weakness, but pain being sort of the cardinal feature. Uh, yet often when we do EMGs on these patients, their sensory studies are normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why do, you, why do you think that is? So, so I think it's exactly because of what, you just, what we just said. I mean, I, I don't know if when you get herniation, you would necessarily impact the, uh, the ganglia itself, 
which is a little bit to the sides. Um, if, if I have like the mental picture I have of the spinal cord, which I encourage our listeners to pull up as we're talking. Yeah, exactly. So the dorsal ganglia is actually distal to where the nerve is often impinged. So you get sensory symptoms because the communication is interrupted between the DRG and the brain, but the dorsal ganglia is continuous with the rest of the nerve more distally. And so it can still get all the nutrients and you know, proteins it needs for the nerve to function down the axon, and the nerve actually stays alive despite the signal not going anywhere. Uh, whereas in the motor nerve, it's cut off from the cell body, and so the nerve then undergoes degeneration, and you get these denervation changes. So uh, just a way of remembering that the dorsal root ganglia is actually a little bit protected from disc herniation in that, in that neural foramen. So uh, I agree with everything else you've said, and after these nerve roots join just distal to the dorsal root ganglia, then what happens to that spinal nerve? I mean, they're going to go innervate the muscle. and uh... Yeah, that, that's basically what they do, right? Then everything else is just how they get there. One important thing to remember is that they actually split immediately after that spinal nerve is formed. And so there are two rami of the nerve. The, the dorsal rami just wraps right around and innervates the paraspinal muscles at that level, as well as the skin over the spine. And then the ventral rami, ramus, I think it's ramus is the singular, the ventral ramus continues and forms what we think of as the, the beginning of the peripheral nerve or the nerve root. But the nerve root actually includes both of those different rami. Uh, and this matters because, uh, again, when you're looking at these patients in an EMG lab, the first muscle innervated after the spine is from that dorsal ramus, and that's the paraspinals. So it's always important to remember that uh, paraspinal denervation really implies either a problem with the nerve root, usually inside the spinal canal, or the motor neuron itself in cases of ALS or motor neuron disease. Uh, but from this point forward, we're going to be talking about uh, the ventral ramus and what it does. So let's forget about the dorsals. We're going to focus mainly on the plexus. Uh, it's important to know the dermatomes. In other words, what nerve root eventually ends up in what area of skin. It's important to know the myotomes, what nerve root innervates what muscles uh, via the brachial plexus and the peripheral nerves. Uh, the myotomes are probably more reliable in terms of clinical examination and also EMG. The dermatomes overlap quite a bit. And uh, actually, one of the heuristics is that a radiculopathy should not cause total anesthesia uh, in, in much skin or any skin at all uh, because of uh, overlap from the adjacent dermatomes. So usually we see uh, total anesthesia in a more peripheral nerve lesion. Uh, but other than that, that's really all I'm going to say about dermatomes today. Uh, let's orient ourselves. What spinal levels contribute to innervation of the upper extremity? Um, so that would be if C5 to T1. Yeah. Uh, are there exceptions to this? Um, sure. So if, if I try to remember, uh, C4 will be a, an exception. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's T2. a prefixed plexus. Okay. Um, T2 would be the postfixed plexus. You got it. And there, it's, it depends on what you read. Um, they've been reported from present in over half of people to present in maybe a third of people. Uh, and definitely prefixed is more common than postfixed. Uh, you know, there hasn't really been a large-scale uh, cadaver study of, of brachial plexus innervation that I'm aware of. Um, and it's important to know that these variants exist. But I think really if you, if you hammer down that C5 through T1 are the prime contributors, that will get you through all of the exams. Uh, just keep that little asterisk in your mind that some people are a little bit different. Uh, so I would recommend, as you said, if anyone wants to pull up a, a supplemental image 
uh, you find your favorite illustration of the brachial plexus now, because uh, we're going to dive I'm deep. Do that too. Yeah, try to be descriptive, but uh, it's hard uh, without an image, so it's nice to have something to refer to. So uh, tell me about the segments of the brachial plexus. Sure. So we're talking about um, roots, trunks, divisions, and then cords. Yep. And then it all, they all end in terminal branches. So I was taught in mnemonic in med school, uh, real Texans drink cold beer. So roots, trunks, real Texans drink, divisions, uh, cords, and branches, cold beer. Um, <laughs> other people have different versions. Uh, it's nice to remember. I think if you draw it out enough, you just know it. Uh, but that's one thing uh, you can use. It, it's, a very, it's actually a pretty simplified version compared to what exists anatomically. Uh, the real plexus is, is very intertwined and is not quite as clean as we believe it to be if we only learn these illustrations, but I think it's a helpful uh, schematic for how it works. So let's start at the most proximal uh, segment, which is the roots. Uh, do, any, do any nerves arise prior to the trunks, in other words, directly from the roots? Uh, the long thoracic nerve. That's a good one to remember, yeah. And what, what, is, uh, what nerve roots contribute to the long thoracic? So that would be C5, C6, and C7. Yep. And what does that nerve do? We love this nerve in the exam. Of course. Um, so that keeps the scapula retracted against the ribcage. So uh, scapular swinging winging is, the, is, is the lesion that we would get from a long thoracic. Yeah, exactly. So the serratus anterior is the muscle that does it in it. That it, it attaches on the medial border of the scapula and then runs between the scapula and the ribs and attaches to the ribs. So it sort of pulls the scapula back onto the ribs, especially when you're pushing your arm out in front of you. Uh, as we do when we're testing for a winged scapula, we'll often have a patient lean up against a wall with their arms in front of them, and we'll see that scapula sort of pop out. Uh, and that's a classic lesion, not only in, in neuromuscular disease for, uh, for nerve lesions, uh, commonly seen in, after some surgeries, uh, I think it's very common in, in uh, mastectomies, uh, but also we do see it in some muscular dystrophies, so it can be a little bit confusing, uh, but it's always good to look for. Uh, any other nerves that come directly off the nerve roots? So we can uh, think about the dorsal scapular nerve, which comes out of the C5. Yeah, so dorsal scapula is an overlooked nerve, uh, but it's important because it arises just before the C5 joins in that upper trunk. Uh, do you know what it does? So the rhomboids... Um, uh, so it, pull, it pulls the scapula toward the dorsum and elevate it. Yep. So the rhomboids are pull the scapula inward, and then the levator scapulae uh, elevate the scapula or bring it upward uh, toward the head. So those attach at the cervical vertebrae uh, higher above the scapula. And just also, it's important to remember that C5 is the lowest root that contributes to the phrenic nerve. So it's not the major contributor, but it is part of uh, the contributors to the phrenic nerve. Uh, C3 through 5 keeps the diaphragm alive, right? Exactly. So uh, that's really what you need to know about the complicated anatomy of the roots. And then from that point, all of these roots go on to join that next segment, uh, which is the trunks. So uh, which trunks exist or how are they named? So the trunk is the um, upper trunk, the middle trunk, and the lower trunk, which is exactly, it's the most straightforward thing about the... Uh, easy. This one's easy to remember. Uh, it gets a little more complicated later, but we'll, we'll explain how to remember that too. Uh, and I think there's probably one nerve you should know that arises directly from a trunk. Uh, do you know what that nerve is? Um, so from the 
from the upper trunk, um, the suprascapular nerve. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Where, where does that go? It will go to the supraspinatus. So that will yes. be for shoulder abduction and the supraspinatus, mm-hmm. which will do external rotation. Yeah. So the easiest way to test the suprascapular is to abduct the shoulder uh, or you can also have patients externally rotate their arms. So they keep their elbow by their side and push their forearm outward against your arm. If you, if you haven't lift the whole arm, it becomes, uh, again, either a super supraspinatus or a deltoid exercise. Uh, and it's, it's important to know this because it uh, is probably the first nerve after the nerve roots join from C5-6 to form the upper trunk. So it helps you localize a little bit in the plexus. And it's easy to test at the bedside. It's also easy to test with needle EMG. So I like that muscle a lot. So if you've got an upper trunk plexopathy, knowing what we know about it, uh, what muscles would be weak uh, if you had the upper trunk? So we, we said that the suprascapular uh, nerve would be affected if it was proximal enough. So the supraspinatus and infraspinatus would be weak, but what else? So we'll think about the, 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 the nerve roots that kind of merge to form the upper trunk. So that mm-hmm. would be the C5 and the C6. Um, right. And the muscles that are predominant innervation from C5 to C6 will be the deltoid the biceps, the brachioradialis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think less prominently would be the triceps and the pro- pronator teres. Yeah, so those have more C7 innervation, but I agree that the primary are the deltoid, which is C5-6 via the axillary nerve, and then the biceps, which is C5-6 via musculocutaneous, and the brachioradialis, which is C5-6 via the radial. So no C5-6 muscle gets innervated without going through the upper trunk first. And that's an important sort of bottleneck to remember. And then what about sensation in an upper trunk uh, plexopathy? So with an upper trunk, I think about the lateral arm, the lateral forearm, uh, the first two digits of the hand, so the the thumb and the index finger. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So, you know, I said we wouldn't talk much about dermatomes, but it's important to remember that C5 is really the lateral shoulder and upper arm, and then C6 takes over in the forearm and really innervates the thumb and first finger. Uh, and that's, so that's a pretty broad swath of skin that should be affected. And, and because it's now two dermatomes side by side, an upper trunk plexopathy may actually lead to a stripe of total anesthesia uh, in the arm, uh, which might help you distinguish it from a poly, let's say a poly radiculopathy uh, at those levels. Wow. And of course, the other thing that would help you would be the involvement of the paraspinal muscles. So in a polyradiculopathy, paraspinal should be involved. In a brachial plexopathy, paraspinal should be spared. All right. So that's really, I think, what you need to know about the upper trunk. And just to review again, it's C5-6 make it, and everything that's innervated by C5-6 goes through it. And so those will be the muscles and skin that we talked about. Have you seen any clinical situations, or maybe we can just sort of brainstorm what might affect the, uh, the upper trunk, even mechanically, if you think about it? Sure. I mean, I think of, uh, of trauma as a particular one, um, especially if the, if the you know, since it's the upper trunk. So I think of things that will stretch the head away from the arm. Um, I don't know what kind of trauma that would be. Like if someone gets hit from the side or impacts and their head goes sort of whiplash sideways away from them. Uh, and then of course the common one is, is birth trauma. Shoulder. Uh, dystocia. Shoulder dystocia uh, from a traumatic birth. Do you remember what that palsy is called? It was named after somebody. Herbs palsy. Yeah. So, you know, I- I don't really love eponyms mainly because I can't remember them. Uh, <laughs> this is one that everybody probably learned for step one uh, and is stuck in their mind. But 
that's the infant uh, with the weakness that causes the waiter's tip posture. Uh, so they're unable to abduct or flex the upper arm, have trouble also uh, pronating the arm, and they end up with sort of their hand turned backward, kind of like uh, you picture a waiter sort of surreptitiously asking for a tip uh, by the table without you know making a big deal of it. Um, any other etiologies that could lead to an upper trunk flexopathy outside of trauma? Um, so some uh, post-operative trauma, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that would cause whatever um, positioning that we've kind of described. Mm-hmm. Uh, Parsonage-Turner is another um, idiopathic kind of condition that I try to remember. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the, the one that you'll get tested on, even though it's more rare than trauma. Uh, and that, by definition, is sort of an idiopathic uh, inflammatory plexitis that can be a panplexitis or can be somewhat selective and affect just certain parts of the plexus. And it's idiopathic because we don't know exactly what the cause is, but it's probably a, a post-viral or you know some kind of inflammatory response. We do occasionally see these post-operative plexitis cases that have no weird positioning. They just go on to develop plexitis after an operation for unclear reasons, but it's usually shoulder surgeries or cervical laminectomies. Uh, so surgeries in the area. Um, anatomically speaking. But yeah, I think that's that's totally great. One other one I'll mention that uh, is probably more a curiosity than anything, but uh, there's something called the rucksack palsy. Uh, it was first noted in army soldiers carrying very heavy backpacks for long periods of time. And it's probably partially a traction injury from pulling downward on the shoulder and also partially compressive. Uh, and actually, if you see a rucksack palsy, you should think at least once about testing for a hereditary neuropathy with a liability for pressure palsies, because this may be someone who would develop a pressure palsy when most people wouldn't, uh, if it's just from carrying a backpack, unless it was an extremely heavy pack. Um, but just a little little tidbit there. Um, so yeah, I think you covered all the causes. In general, traumatic plexopathies are more common, and then you always want to think about uh, inflammatory causes. Um, that's really it for the upper trunk. Uh, any any questions on that, or, or things that uh, you want me to reemphasize? No, I think that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I like the fact that carrying a heavy backpack almost does the same exact thing that we've described, which is stretching the arm away from the from the head. So yeah, I so. like it because it's easy to remember like that. Exactly, it doesn't really happen, but uh, at least that I've seen. But I'm sure it does in, in certain groups that just don't come through my clinic. Uh, so we really very rarely see a middle trunk uh, pathology, and other than paraspinal involvement, it's it's almost indistinguishable from a C7 radiculopathy, because that's the only way for C7 nerve roots to get into the uh, brachial plexus. So uh, I'll kind of skip over that. Uh, suffice to say that uh, you know anything that's C7 innervated, either skin or muscle, could be affected. Uh, and I think we'll, we can move on sort of to the lower trunk. So uh, tell me a little bit about the basic anatomy that we need to remember for the lower trunk, in your opinion. So I try to remember um, the, the C8 to T1. Um, mm-hmm. in the lower trunk because C7, like you said, is going to be the middle trunk and just kind of try to remember the muscles that it innervates. Yeah. Do you, do you, are there any ones that you think of uh, right off the bat? I always think about the intrinsic hand muscles. Um, so essentially like all the ulnar innervated muscles mm-hmm. and the, me- the median intrinsic hand muscles um, and then the, the radial hand muscles as well, like the thumb extensors. Exactly. So that the lower trunk is really the hand uh, nerve highway uh, because most of the intrinsic hand muscles, well, basically all of them are C8T1 innervated. And the lower trunk is how C8T1 gets into the plexus. So 
Now, again, with paraspinals being your guide uh, to whether it's a polyradiculopathy or a plexopathy, uh, as well as the clinical context, uh, just remember that uh, lower trunk or C8T1 problems tend to affect the hand predominantly. And that's because, as you said, it's all of the ulnar uh, fibers go through the lower trunk. And then the, the intrinsic hand muscles of the median nerve uh, are C8T1. And the extensor pollicis group and the extensor indices uh, are also innervated through, uh, by the radial nerve through the lower trunk. So they end up with this sort of claw hand deformity, it's known as. And it's, it's because there's uh, an imbalance between flexion and extension uh, in the fingers and also a problem with other hand intrinsics uh, that limit hand motion. Uh, do you know what sensory area uh, is supplied by the lower trunk? So just, you know, by memory, if the um, upper trunk is responsible for the lateral aspect and the medial aspect is what's supplied by the uh, lower trunk. Yeah. Uh, and we want to think about the, the fourth and the fifth digits. Exactly. So it's, it's kind of a mirror image of the upper trunk. Uh, the fourth, fifth, medial forearm and medial arm would all be affected. Uh, and, and the other way to remember that is C7 pretty much covers the middle finger and to some degree the index and ring fingers. Mm -hmm. uh, but then it's either covered by the upper trunk uh, or the lower trunk. Um, what, what do you think might cause a lower trunk plexopathy, thinking about the mechanics there? So it was trauma. <laughs> yep, always trauma. So first place to think, good. Yeah, so just like the upper trunk when we said stretching from above, um, with the lower trunk, it's really from below. So any pressure on the axilla, um, you know, that, that could happen um, during childbirth or a surgery, you know, where they keep the arm um, in, in, in an awkward position that pressures the axilla. Um, or traction, uh, you know, from, I, I remember like the person hanging from a tree, you mm -hmm. know, kind of the, the axilla stretched. Yeah. So our arms are just like big flailing, you know, hooks, right? So it's very easy to have trauma in which you pull the arm upward and away from the body, especially if you're falling and you try to catch yourself. The other thing I think I like to remember here is the infiltrative cancerous lesions. So pancose tumors or apical lung tumors uh, can infiltrate upward and cause a, a lower trunk plexopathy. And you often see the Horner syndrome with that as well. That's sort of the classic finding. Uh, something that's talked about but is really extremely rare is neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, uh, which really means that some of the nerves are being compressed by a shoulder outlet that's too tight. Uh, the most common cause of this is a little band of tissue between uh, the lateral process of C8 or a rudimentary, or sorry, C7 or a rudimentary cervical rib, uh, or an actual extra rib itself. And so often that has to be resected. Sometimes even the first thoracic rib will be resected to treat this and give some space for the lower, lower trunk to, to breathe, so to speak. Uh, and then the other thing to remember is a lot of tumors uh, in the thorax that get radiated are near the lower trunk. So breast tumors, uh, lung cancers, uh, you can get these post-radiation plexopathies that are really delayed by quite some time. Uh, and sort of a classic EMG question that's just a good tidbit to know. Do you know what the EMG finding is uh, associated with radiation plexopathy? Sure. I vaguely remember um, you mentioning that. Myokinia? Yeah, which is sounds like marching soldiers. So it's little groups of discharges that fire at a regular pace, not quite synchronously. Uh, and so it sounds like a bunch of soldiers' feet hitting the ground, like uh, and that's pretty classic, but uh, you have to look for it, obviously, in order to find it. So just a little tidbit there. But again, uh, it seems that the lower trunk is more vulnerable uh, to a number of different lesions. 
probably just because of the way we're built uh, mechanically. So just good to remember that a variety of things can cause that. Uh, and again, it's going to be issues with hand intrinsics and sensation uh, to the medial arm, forearm, and hand. Uh, and this is also uh, known as a Klumpke's palsy, uh, if you want to go with the eponymous term. All right, so I think we've talked about the trunks. Anything you want to clarify before we move on? It's just good to remember that the upper trunk is more a waiter stick position, and mm-hmm. the lower trunk is more of a claw, and that could hurt, help us remember which muscles are innervated. Perfect. All right, so let's talk about the divisions a little bit. There's, there's not too much to know, honestly. Uh, it's very hard to get an isolated lesion to one of the divisions. Uh, remember, the divisions are where each trunk splits into an anterior and a posterior division, and then those go on to form the cords. So oftentimes, it's just good to remember where they go uh, and then move on uh, to the cords themselves. So the upper trunk divides, and then uh, actually they all divide. All of their posterior cords go to their posterior divisions go to the posterior cord. So that's easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the upper two trunks, their anterior divisions go to the lateral cord, and then the lower trunk, its anterior division, forms the medial cord. So it's essentially just a continuation of the nerve. Mm-hmm. Um, but an easy thing to remember is the posterior is formed by all the posteriors. Uh, so when, then the cords are formed. And I think it's important to talk about the cords and branches together because the cords start to give off terminal branches even in that segment, and then really they have their their largest terminal branches classified as uh, branches of the brachial plexus. So um, do you remember what the three cords are named, Sava? Um, so we have the lateral cord, which, like you said, is the more the uh, anterior ones. And then we have the posterior cord and the medial cord. Yeah, and what are those lateral, posterior, and medial two? It's actually after a relationship to the axillary artery. Yeah, which is important to remember anatomically speaking. Um, but it also just helps you remember why they're named that way. Uh, so what, um, let's talk about the lateral cord and its terminal branches. What branches do you think what everybody should know? From the lateral cord? Yeah. Um, the musculocutaneous, um, yep. so the biceps and the brachialis, yep. um, um, which are essentially our elbow flexors. Yeah, for the most uh, part. And part of the median nerve comes from the lateral cord. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be the um, C6 innervation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the la- lateral pectoral uh, is the, just the minor branch. Yeah, so the pectoral sort of comes off the cord uh, while it's still considered a cord uh, and is one of the two nerves that innervates the pectoralis muscles. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree. Uh, do you remember what the sensory component of the musculocutaneous nerve is? Sure, it's, uh, it, it, so it's the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve. That, so that would be the, the lateral forearm sensation, which it, we kind of covered when we were talking about the upper, upper trunk. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it, it gives rise to that lateral antibrachial cutaneous And then we'll talk about where the rest of the lateral arm sensation actually comes from in a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, So keeping all that in mind, what would a lateral cord plexopathy look like? So you would have a weakness in our elbow flexion uh, from the muscles cutaneous, Mm -hmm. just the biceps. And we would have a sensory loss to the lateral forearm, um, hand and and fingers. And which reflex would you be missing? So our biceps reflex. Exactly. So biceps reflex is a classic uh, indicator of lateral cord flexopathy, which is more common than in isolated musculocutaneous neuropathy, although those do happen as well. Uh, Great. 
So letter record is actually pretty simple. It only has those three uh, terminal branches that we talked about. Uh, what about the, uh, let's work our way sort of toward the middle of the arm. So we'll dive behind the axillary artery here. Uh, what about the posterior cord? What are the, sort of the big branches we should remember there? So I always try to remember those are, are as the really the, the, the big ones, the axillary and the radial. Axillary is more of the, um, again, kind of to review what we talked about before. It's the deltoid, just so the shoulder abduction, and the, the superior lateral brachial cutaneous, um, just the lateral shoulder. It's a little patch. Yeah, so in theory, it covers a large area of the shoulder, but again, because of dermatomal overlap, you often only find a very small, um, probably bigger than a postage stamp, but still a pretty small area of uh, shoulder that's affected. But you can actually have true anesthesia in that area, uh, so it's important to remember. Uh, and I agree, the uh, the main motor function of the axillary is the deltoid, uh, which is shoulder abduction. And what about the radial nerve? I think of the radial nerves always as the extensors, essentially any yeah. extensor. Uh, below the shoulders. So that's going to be our triceps. Uh, that's going to be our extensor carpi group, extensor digitorum, uh, and, all, and all of it, you know, the pollicis, longus, the brevis, um, as well as our elbow flexor. Um, one, of, one of the elbow flexors, actually, the brachioradialis it, um, only, really. Yeah, exactly. And I, so sometimes I find it easier to remember the exceptions to innervation. Uh, and this is one of those cases. So the radio really does every extensor without exception. Uh, and it does this extra thing. And that's the one that you have to remember, which is the brachioradialis. So that flexes your elbow when you're sort of in a mid pronated position. And if you, if you sort of make a fist, like you're pounding your fist on the table and then bend your arm upward, you'll feel that muscle uh, right on top running along the radius bone. Uh, but everything else, as you said, is extensor. And what about the sensory function of the radial nerve? Sure. So that would be the lateral arm. Uh, posterior arm, the posterior forearm. Um, so I always think about it as, as, as more like the posterior aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so radial really is just kind of covers all the posterior of the arm. It's like they didn't really care about extension and posterior stuff, so they just give it one nerve. Uh, and everything <laughs> on the outside gets multiple nerves. Uh, so yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, and again, it's one of those things where it, it technically innervates a pretty large part of the posterior hand, you know, the posterior thumb, index, middle, and half of ring fingers, with the exception of the fingertips, and then that, that lateral uh, dorsum of the hand. But really, again, because of overlap in a radial nerve lesion, you often only get a small patch that's sort of on and around the first dorsal interosseous there between the, the thumb and index finger in the back of the hand. So uh, it can be pretty subtle, uh, despite uh, actually having a large territory innervated. Uh, good. So... There's also a couple of branches that come off uh, while it's still sort of the posterior cord. Uh, the one I like to remember is the, uh, the, th the thoracodorsal nerve. Do you remember what muscle that innervates? The, the lats. Yes, exactly. So that's our main shoulder adductor that's coming off the posterior cord. So mm -hmm. it actually, the posterior cord is responsible for any lateral motion of the shoulder, the exception of the contr contribution from the supraspinatus. And so that's really important to remember. Keeping all that in mind, what does a posterior cord plexopathy look like? I love that we can bring it all in. Yeah. Uh, so you would have a radial palsy um, plus weakness of the shoulder abduction, uh, which is the axillary, and adduction, which is the thoracodorsal, which is like we said, it innervate the lats. 
Uh, and then you would have a sensory loss on the lateral arm, uh, posterior forearm, uh, posterior lateral hand. Um, yeah. and, and we forgot to mention the Saturday night palsy. Yes, I figured we'd, uh, I wasn't sure if we'd talk about it today or in, in an entrapment lecture, but I think we can touch upon it briefly now. So uh, formerly called the Saturday Night Palsy, I think we're learning, we're working on changing that uh, sort of term, but uh, it, it, it results from falling asleep, basically, or something that causes prolonged compression, just distal to the axilla and catches the, the nerve as it's traveling along the humerus. And what was sort of the classic finding of that? So you have a wrist drop. Yes. So the wrist drop is usually the most prominent. Depending on what part of the humerus was compressed, you can also get some branches to the triceps as well. Uh, but those come off surprisingly high uh, and oftentimes are spared. Uh, and then, of course, with any lesion in the posterior cord, because it affects all of the radial nerve, you're going to lose triceps and brachioradialis reflexes. Um, so those, are, those ones can be tested pretty easily. Uh, so then all that's left, really, is the medial cord. So... Uh, what do you think is important to remember about the medial cord? So, so the medial cord is really the ulnar. Uh, so, you yeah. know, just to kind of like remember the, 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 the lateral cord is the musculocutaneous, the posterior uh, cord is our um, axillary and radial, and our medial cord is really the ulnar. Yeah, so it's a continuation of the lower trunk. And we said the lower trunk was the only trunk that gives nerves, fibers to the ulnar nerve. Yeah. And remember that no other division joins to form the medial cord. It's just the anterior division of the lower trunk. So uh, everything in the medial cord is coming from C8T1 and everything in the ulnar nerve is running through there. Um, so thinking about the muscles of the ulnar, how do you remember what the ulnar does? So it's most of our hand flexors, circulpi mm -hmm. uh, ulnaris, uh, flexor digitorum profundus in the forearm, uh, all the intrinsic hand muscles, except for the median innervated ones. Yeah, so that's another exception I like to remember is as long as you know, and we'll talk about this in the entrapment lecture, or not really lecture, but conversation, as long <laughs> as you know what the median nerve does in the hand, everything else is ulnar past the wrist. So that's what we mean by intrinsic hand muscles. So uh, I agree with you. It's almost all of our finger movers except for some of the median nerves in the thenar eminence in the forearm. Uh, and then uh, what about sensation from the ulnar nerve? So that would be the lateral hand, um, you know, the lateral half of the fourth digit, the ring finger, the mm -hmm. fifth digit mm -hmm. um, on the dorsal and ventral sides. Yeah, so no splitting with the radial this time. It, it's really everything medial to a line drawn down the, the middle of the fourth digit and then down to the wrist. And that's via uh, the ulnar nerve through the uh, ulnar tunnel in the wrist or Guyon's canal, as well as the dorsal ulnar cutaneous which branches off before uh, the ulnar tunnel and runs right around that, that ulnar prominence. So uh, keeping that in mind, what would a medial cord plexopathy look like? You would have a weakness in all hand intrinsics. Um, you would get sensory loss, basically the, the, the medial half of um, the hands. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it, it, again, all of the hand intrinsics come from the medial cord. Uh, so really, you're going to lose all of your hand intrinsic muscles and then some of your more proximal muscles in the forearm that affect fourth and fifth finger flexion as well as some of wrist flexion and then all the sensory territory that's supplied by the ulnar uh, nerve. Uh, so really, it's uh, – and actually, that's really the whole C8 uh, T1 dermatome because mm -hmm. it's a continuation of the lower trunk. So 
it can be a pretty large area affected. We didn't talk about the median as much um, since it's sort of a combination of the lateral and medial cords, but well, what do you think is important to remember about it? We just need to remember that uh, most of the forearm flexor um, muscles um, are predominantly me median. Sensation to the other fingers that we had spoken about, so that would be the thumb, um, the index finger, the middle finger, and half of the ring finger. Pretty yeah, the dorsal fingertips uh, <laughs> yeah. too. And like you said, so we're, we're starting to see some general heuristics here. And if you know these and know the exceptions, you're good. So the radial nerve is really all the extensors. The musculocutaneous nerve is the elbow flexors, mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of the radial innervated brachioradialis. The median yeah. nerve is the anterior forearm compartment, with the exception of the flexor carpi ulnaris and the flexor digitorum profundus to four and five. And then the ulnar is the hand intrinsics, with the exception of the thenar eminence and the first two lumbricals. So if you learn these general patterns and exceptions, and we'll re-emphasize that uh, in the next chat maybe, but uh, that's actually your way of sort of working your way back into the brachial plexus. And again, as you said, I think it's important to draw it over and over and over again, but also think functionally what's going to happen with lesions in all of these possible places, particularly any of the, the trunks and any of the cords, and that helps you sort of conceptualize uh, and give a little bit of context to some of this anatomy. So I think, um, and I'll let you sort of clarify anything you want at the end, but our next chat should probably be about entrapment neuropathies. And then we can sort of talk about the nuances of what happens after the plexus and where that can go awry. Any final points you want to make? Absolutely. So I think it would be helpful to review um, uh, the fact that our lateral cord, which is predominantly the musculocutaneous nerve, comes from C5 to C7. Our posterior cord comes from the posterior division of C6 to C8. And our medial cord comes from the, um, the uh, C8 to T1. Um, and actually, the, the posterior cord gets C5 through T1, believe it or not. Uh, oh. The way you can remember that is the deltoid is an axillary muscle, but it's a C5-6 muscle. Sure. So the posterior cord really carries a little bit from everywhere, uh, despite only going to a couple of nerves. So uh, that's why it's actually very complex uh, in real anatomy. Um, um, I think this is a very weak part in my personal uh, fund of knowledge. So. You did great. <laughs> uh, you, you know, remember the basics. You don't have to be a master of this. You're not, unless you're going to neuromuscular, you're not going to be, you know, EMGing complex brachial plexus studies. Uh, but if you know your anatomy and, again, know some basic patterns, uh, you're going to get a lot of points back on your, your standardized tests. So hopefully this is helpful to everyone. Um, we'll, uh, we'll talk some more about it soon. How's that sound? Yeah, please stay tuned for uh, some entrapment neuropathies and um, yeah. some lower extremity as well. Ah, yes. Can't forget the legs. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk again soon. Yes. Thank you. Bye.